one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. This podcast episode contains descriptions of violent death and suicide and the names of Aboriginal people who have died. Listener discretion is advised. It's mid-morning, Wednesday the 12th of May 1926, and at a lonely abandoned mine called Miller's Find, six miles south of Kalgoorlie, Detective Sergeant Grenville Perdue is weeping. The man's seen a lot in his quarter of a century on the police force, but he's never seen anything like this. Same goes for his brother officers, Detective Sergeant Spedding Smith, Detective Sergeant O'Brien and Constable Pite and they're all walking this way and that, trying to shake off their own feelings of horror, pity, and utter revulsion. They're all unable to believe what miner Billy Batten has sent up from the bowels of the earth. Two sacks. The first to reach the surface contains the burly naked trunk of a dead man. From the stature, they think this is missing Detective Sergeant Alexander Pittman. It's a guess because of the advanced decomposition and the fact the head's gone and the arms and legs are missing. When unwrapped, the second sack has revealed the slenderly built torso of another man, which they think belonged to Detective Sergeant John Joseph Walsh. It was accompanied by an arm and part of a thigh that Batten had found loose and put in the sack. Batten is soon sending up what's left of another arm and two legs, but Walsh's head isn't found. It's clear that after the men were killed, their murderers cut them into pieces and tried to burn the parts. When they couldn't achieve this, they dumped what remained here. How the detectives died isn't clear from what remains of the bodies. Bullet and stab wounds are not visible. What seems likely is that they were both shot in the head. Among the evidence brought up this morning and early afternoon are buckets of evil-smelling earth. In this dirt will be found fingernails, false teeth, burned skull fragments, buttons and buckles. Also recovered, 
two cufflinks that John Walsh always wore. There's also a big bloodstained kitchen knife and a bloodstained saw with a broken tip and damaged handle. These two pieces of evidence may prove crucial. And that's also true of two pieces of clothing that come out of the shaft. One's a well-made old blue overcoat with loose buttons and a white handkerchief in one pocket. The other's a pair of grey trousers, which are distinctive because they've been tailored with a double seat. Neither the coat nor the pants belong to the dead men. So there's every reason for the police to believe if they find their owners, they've found the murderers. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part two of the five-part Forgotten Australia episode, Blue Murder on the Golden Mile. The horror of Miller's find was, as Billy Batten would say, beyond description. The Mirror newspaper in Perth would report the men's reactions, quote, Even hardened diggers who had been through the worst of the war paled at the sight of the awful mutilation. Batten was quite rightly praised as a hero. He'd had to come up for air on several occasions, but he'd never once complained. Instead, he said to a daily news reporter, It's a duty that's got to be done. Refusing food, coffee, brandy and even a cigar, Billy got on with his duty. In addition to the burned body parts, bloodstained knife and saw, and the murderer's clothing, Batten retrieved much, but not quite all, of an illicit gold processing plant. There was a circular furnace fashioned from an old ink drum. He'd also sent up a large dish nearly two feet in diameter, kerosene tins, partly burned bags, fire bricks studded with gold, and gold scales and weights. But kit you'd expect to find, such as a roaster, wasn't down the shaft. There were other items to be followed up though, including material and curtains. When Detective Sergeant Purdue had recovered, he sent word to Inspector Condon in Kalgoorlie about the terrible discovery. Condon quickly got a message to Trooper Alexander Goldie and his two black trackers. They'd been working in another area and now had to rush to Miller's find. Trooper Goldie had just earlier that day had a curious experience. In the morning, around 6.30, he and one of his trackers had been searching in Boulder. They'd stopped to water their horses at a trough on the street. As they waited, a man came out of the Duke of Cornwall Hotel, which was a popular Goldfields watering hole. This bloke struck up a conversation, which got around to him saying, quote, I suppose you're out looking for Walsh and Pittman. Trooper Goldie said that was right. The man, who appeared to have been drinking, replied, You'll never find the bastards. What he'd just said wasn't nice, but then again, not everybody on the goldfields liked the detectives. And if they had met with foul play, then finding their bodies would be difficult. Goldie didn't give the comment too much more thought, though he did mention it a few hours later to Detective Sergeant Manning. Now though, the man from the Duke of Cornwall Hotel had been proved wrong. The bodies had been found, and Goldie and his black trackers, Aboriginal men known to the whites as Tommy and Sambo, were heading to Miller's find to do what they could with any traces the killers might have left behind. Inspector Condon, Detective Sergeant McGinty and District Medical Officer Dr Samuel Matthews were also racing to the scene. Their hurried departure from Kalgoorlie was noticed by locals and word soon spread that something was happening. That afternoon, 200 cars would head out to Miller's Find carrying people who wanted to see for themselves. Police kept these spectators back. Tracks had been found around the shaft. It looked like the killers had brought the bodies out here in a spring cart. They'd locked one of the wheels and let their horse roam so it could graze while they went about their grisly work. 
Police didn't want onlookers obliterating this trail, because if it could be followed from the scene, it might lead them to where the murders had actually been committed. It was clear that gold hadn't been processed at Miller's find. While there was plenty of kit down the shaft, there were necessary pieces of plant unaccounted for. There was also no evidence anyone had camped and worked here. Most tellingly, Walsh and Pittman's bicycles were nowhere to be found. They had either been disposed of elsewhere, or were still in the bush where the detectives had hidden them. In Kalgoorlie, an inquest was opened by the coroner, and a three-man jury impaneled and sent to the scene. The body parts and other evidence were wrapped in canvas and loaded onto a flatbed truck. Walsh and Pittman's remains were at the morgue by 4.30 that afternoon, and everything else was taken to the detective office. Inspector Condon had a telegram sent to the police commissioner in Perth, it was short and stark. Quote, the bodies of Inspector Pittman and Sergeant Walsh were discovered this morning in a shaft on an abandoned lease five miles south of Kalgoorlie and three miles due west of Boulder by Detective Sergeant Purdue, Constable Pite and a party of miners. The bodies have been cut up and attempted to be burned. Many parts are missing, including the skulls. Please arrange for a pathologist to be sent here this evening's train without fail. Flags were lowered to half-mast in Kalgoorlie, and they'd remain that way for two days. In Perth, the Daily News' final edition had the headline, Missing Detectives Found Foully Murdered. It seemed evident there was more than one killer. Billy Batten thought that all the evidence had been packed at the bottom of the mine. Whoever had done this had then been hauled to the surface by an accomplice. But the medical examination showed that the body parts had been crushed, it seemed by heavy bags of bricks and ore that had actually been dropped from the top. This could have accounted for the appearance of packing. Even so, those bags had weighed a lot. Probably more than one man was able to carry. Additionally, it just seemed hard to believe that a single criminal had gotten the drop on two veteran detectives. The killers had been ruthless in cutting up the bodies to fit into a furnace, but it also appeared they'd been panicked and hurried. That was because they'd tossed bricks still spattered with valuable gold, and they'd thrown away rich ore still to be processed. Why they'd chosen Miller's find was a mystery. It was out of the way, but it was also just 20 yards from that bush track used by people out for drives, like Jack Edwards and George Brown, who'd first encountered the terrible smell and alerted detectives. Had the murderers already known of Miller's find's existence? It seemed a good bet. It was further speculated that their plan had been to come back with dynamite and seal the shaft forever. If they had, Walsh and Pittman would never have been found. Yet the murderers had failed to do this. Had they thought a return trip was too risky and that the iron sheets would serve well enough to cover up the bodies and keep in the smell? Police didn't know. At this point, all they had were questions. The mirror ran a ghastly headline. Kalgoorlie shaft yields up its mangled dead. The paper had plenty of pictures to accompany what it called the greatest manhunt in the history of Western Australia. There was the flatbed lorry, surrounded by detectives looking at the wrapped remains and evidence piled in sacks. Another picture showed officers examining the furnace, dish and other plant equipment in the police yard. Detective Sergeant Purdue was photographed holding the saw, quote, which was used for the dreadful work of cutting up the bodies. The Daily News told readers it had grim photos too, but had chosen not to publish them. Quote, there is a decency and restraint on these occasions in which we feel that every reputable newspaper should lead the way. Yet the Daily News wasn't above floating a baseless theory that foreigners were to blame for the killings. 
It claimed that Walsh might have predicted his own murder when he supposedly said at a public gathering years ago, quote, God help us and the law abiding if a certain type of foreigner now coming so rapidly into the fields becomes alive to the undesirable practices in our midst. Then indeed will the gold stealing detection staff be put on its merits. Yet Walsh's recent talk with Condon and his annual report didn't suggest that any foreigners were involved in gold stealing around the time he went missing. Nor did the police files show any particular focus on immigrant workers as suspects. The Sunday Times was to print similar photos to the Mirror. Its lead article began, Murdered! Foully and diabolically murdered! No one was arguing with that. The killing of Walsh and Pittman was shocking, but the way their bodies had been desecrated was sickening. Without exaggerating, the Sunday Times said the crime, quote, has stirred the populace from end to end of the state and engendered feelings of great revulsion throughout the Commonwealth. The mystery might have been unfolding on the other side of the country, but Eastern newspapers had been and would continue to hang on every development. An example, The Sun in Sydney. On the 11th of May, its headline, Mystery, Two Detectives Missing, Goldfield Sensation, Kalgoorlie. The next day, Hot on Trail, Kalgoorlie Mine Horror, Clues Found. Every hope of success. And the day after that, many clues, death hole of Kalgoorlie, thrilling story, search for detective slayers. In the absence of anything definite, theories abounded. It didn't seem likely Walsh and Pittman had been lured away to be assassinated. Gold thieves weren't that vindictive or desperate, and the detectives at this stage were not known to have expressed any fears they were being targeted. It seemed more probable that Walsh and Pittman had surprised thieves and things had gone very, very wrong. But where had that happened? Those cart tracks might lead to the bikes, the plant and the crime scene. But for the moment, the police and the black trackers seemed to be following them in circles. Other than the grey trousers and the blue overcoat, Purdue and his men didn't have a lot of physical evidence to go on. What they really needed was for Goldfield's people to come forward with what they knew. Someone had to have seen or heard something that could lead to a breakthrough. The Western Australian government tried to loosen lips with a £1,000 reward for information leading to the conviction of the murderer or murderers. It had come with a free pardon for any accomplice who wasn't actually involved in committing the crime. The reward was the largest ever offered by the state, and the Chamber of Mines in Kalgoorlie soon added £500. £1,500 adjusted for inflation is $125,000 today. Walking around Kalgoorlie and Boulder, you were constantly reminded of this incentive to spill what you knew. The railway station, post office, police headquarters, telephone boxes, pubs and shops, they were all plastered with reward posters. Out around Miller's Find, the detectives and black trackers had followed the cart tracks around and around. It seemed the murderers had actually been clever enough to obscure their trail. On the morning of Friday the 14th, Detective Sergeant Purdue was in Kalgoorlie Detective Office and talking with officers about the first members of the gold-stealing detective staff, including his old colleague, William Kurtzfeld, long since retired and recently working as a cellarman at the Kalgoorlie Brewery. Right then, a uniformed constable burst in with terrible news. A man had just been found dead in a lavatory at the Kalgoorlie Recreation Reserve. His throat was cut. Purdue raced to the scene. When the body was turned over, Purdue couldn't believe his eyes, saying, Good God, it's Bill Kurtzfeld. For the second time in two days, 
this detective was staring down at a man he'd known well and worked with for years. Kurtzfeld, who had a wife and children, was a big, tall, handsome guy with clear blue eyes, and he was extremely popular with everyone who knew him. Shortly before he was found dead, he'd been in the street talking to people. Kurtzfeld was found with a bloody razor in one hand. That made it seem like it was suicide. But why had he killed himself? Some locals rushed to the conclusion that he'd been involved in the murders of his old mates Walsh and Pittman and, crushed by the terrible guilt, had committed suicide. Though detectives didn't believe this, it was still incumbent upon them to investigate. As soon as the bodies of Walsh and Pittman had been found, messages of sympathy and condolence poured in for the widows and to the police commissioner from all over the state and nation. The police file contains dozens and dozens of these letters and telegrams. They came from friends and former colleagues, from police officials in eastern cities, from housewives, from civil servants and commercial travellers, from Boy Scouts and from motorcycle enthusiasts. The police file also soon bulged with reports from officers chasing down leads. Frank Griffiths, a convicted gold thief, had been admitted to Kalgoorlie Hospital just two days after Walsh and Pittman were last seen. He was experiencing a mental breakdown and wearing clothes spattered with blood that wasn't his. Of course, this was followed up most seriously, but Frank Griffiths was cleared. Convicted gold thief Charlie Egan was interviewed and he said he didn't know anything about the murders. He reckoned the killings had been a spur-of-the-moment thing and said that no one on the goldfields would be so callous as to cut the cops up like that, so it had to be someone from out of town. His brother Tom was also interviewed and also claimed no knowledge. In his opinion, it was the work of foreigners. Despite their reputations, the police believed the men were telling the truth. Yet Charlie would come under renewed scrutiny when a pocket knife with his name on it was found near Miller's find a few days after the bodies were recovered police quickly came to the conclusion that someone had planted it there in the hope of framing him. One tip came from as far afield as Ballarat, where a police officer said he'd been talking to a Western Australian mine manager who'd recently returned to Victoria. This man said he'd known Pittman well, and the detective had talked about a man in Kalgoorlie named Trephine who talked of getting him and dropping him down a mine shaft. Given that Walsh had mentioned this man Trephine to Condon, checks would also be made on him. The police received a torrent of correspondence from concerned citizens. A friend of Walsh's mentioned a few years back that the detective had been helping a woman whose husband was beating her, and this man had threatened to do him in if he got the chance. Unfortunately, this letter writer couldn't remember the scoundrel's name. Detective Sergeant Perdue got an anonymous message comprised of cut-out typewritten words pasted onto a sheet. It read, No doubt Floyd, a Bertha Street, will give you progress. An officer was dispatched to investigate, but the man Floyd, who was a prospector, had been away for some time, including when the murders had taken place. Other tipsters told of a man abruptly trying to sell a car cheap in a Perth hotel, mysterious sulkies seen late at night on the goldfields, a foreign-looking couple who lived in a tent outside Kalgoorlie and were probably gold thieves and, quote, perhaps connected with the murders. One correspondent began his letter to Purdue with, Dear Sir, I make no claim to emulate the little boy teaching his grandmother to suck eggs, but... This man then went into minute detail explaining just how the detective should be investigating those cart tracks. A man from far off Armadale in New South Wales said he'd tried to get into the police force but was underweight. So how about him coming over, going undercover and busting this thing wide open? 
A man from Coburg in Victoria demanded that the reward be deposited into his bank account, and only then would he supply all of the culprit's personal information. Then there was the small army of visionaries, spiritualists and clairvoyants. A Goldfields woman, who was clearly up on the local underworld's characters, wrote that she'd dreamed the murders had taken place in an underground cellar. The men responsible? Charlie Egan, the recently institutionalised Frank Griffiths and a shady mine boss named Big Alf Hall. Another woman, who claimed to know Walsh and Pittman, said three weeks before the tragedy she'd dreamed they'd been murdered by four men and dropped into a mine shaft. She said she could identify the culprits among a million faces and she gave the police their detailed descriptions. A woman sent in a typewritten transcript of her mother's mediumship, this babbling stream of spirit guide consciousness about wicked workers of gold and one man who worked murder in his heart extending over three incomprehensible pages. There were people who'd learned the truth at seances, a fortune teller who'd been given the names, ages and addresses of the five murderers, and one crank who dreamed of a lion being killed by a man and was pretty sure the big cat represented Pittman. But the strangest piece of correspondence came from a woman who was very well known indeed. This was celebrity anthropologist Daisy Bates, who by then had spent more than 20 years living with Indigenous people in the Western Australian outback. Bates, given her prominence, wrote directly to Western Australia's governor. Bates didn't just have the name of the culprit, but also advice on what to do about him for the good of everybody. She wrote that a young Aboriginal boy named Thanubi had yesterday arrived at her camp on a supply train from the goldfields. This boy, quote, tells me the detectives were murdered by a native named Beagle because he was refused food. Thanubi states that he, that was Beagle, killed one detective, cut him up and threw him in the shaft and waited for the detective's mate who he also killed and cut up. Bates seemed to want to skip right past inconveniences such as a police investigation and a court trial. Quote, I am mentioning this to your excellency because I hope that the man will be hanged, as if he is not, the natives, who think nothing of life sentences in jail, will increase in criminality. Bates explained how much Aboriginal people liked being in jail because they got three square meals a day. Quote, but hanging acts as a deterrent and is really the only deterrent with these savage peoples. She had a suggestion for how things might be improved. Quote, I wish I had the full control of the inland Aborigines of the West. They fear me as well as respect me, and I can influence them quietly and effectively. Given Bates had a few years earlier been concocting stories of Aboriginal cannibalism, claiming that women regularly gave birth to children so they could cook and eat them, no one in authority took any notice of her help in this case. The crimes were grim enough without her racist, lurid imaginings. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. By Saturday the 15th of May, Dr. Matthews and the government pathologist had reassembled Walsh's body. His identification, helped by the distinctive corrugated fingernails and those cufflinks, was definite. 
Of the other torso, the best Dr. Matthews could say was that it was his opinion it was Pittman who he'd known. With this sad work done, the remains would be sent to Perth for their funerals. Condon told reporters, quote, I'm afraid, from what the doctors tell me, we will not be able to say how death was caused. The inspector also had to report they'd made no progress in finding the bikes or getting any information that would lead to the murderers. The Daily News headline that day read, The Kalgoorlie murderers still evade the police. The paper said the cops had come up against men as clever as themselves. Meanwhile, the latest horror, the bloody demise of William Kurtzfeld, had everybody wondering. The Daily News reported, quote, First, the cold-blooded, fiendish murder of Inspector Walsh and Sergeant Pittman, and then the tragic suicide of ex-constable Kurtzfeld. Men and women are openly whispering, what next? There is an all-pervading atmosphere of dreadful doubt and suspicion. At least Kurtzfeld seemed cleared of being involved in anything more sinister than his self-destruction. While his former police pal said he was as straight as an arrow, it was reported he'd been a bit, quote, mental when he'd left the force. Kurtzfeld's widow said he'd been suffering nerves and melancholy and acting a bit funny lately. The Daily News, reporting that the poor man had been friends with Walsh and Pittman, said, quote, The shock occasioned by their terrible end was too much for his mind, already sorely taxed. The razor did the rest. Ongoing coverage of the story included insight into two very different Billies. One was Billy Batten, who, during the week, had been in a bad way. Ever since going down into that hole to bring up the dead men, he'd been unable to sleep or eat or even take brandy. But by Saturday, he supposedly was coming good. To the cheers of his shiftmates, Billy went back into the mine he worked on in South Kalgoorlie. How much he suffered mentally and emotionally after that isn't known. He did keep it underground work, and it was a good thing that he did. In 1928, Batten would rescue a boy who'd fallen 200 feet down a mine and be rewarded with a Royal Life-Saving Medal. As found at Ancestry.com.au, Billy Batten lived to be an old man, dying in 1960 at the age of 85. The Daily News' other Billy was the Aboriginal tracker they called Billy G. That he was reported to be working for Trooper Goldie means this could have been another white name given to either Tommy or Sambo. The newspaper's report was typically patronising, but offered a glimpse of his life and a hint that he was suffering also. Quote, He is an extraordinary smart and intelligent Aboriginal and speaks good English, although at times he lapses into the pigeon talk so common among natives. Although a good tracker, Billy is not altogether at home in the country around Kalgoorlie. He hails from the Kimberley district in the far northwest and would be more at home reading the signs that the great Spinifex tracts have to offer than those of gravelly ridges of the Kalgoorlie district. How Billy G had come to be so far from home, we can only guess. But even dislocated, he was doing good work, telling the Daily News that while he was yet to catch a murderer, he'd caught, quote, plenty horse thief and robbery man. It doesn't seem that this Billy G was one and the same as Kimberly Billy, a tracker based in Perth and assigned to a city police constable, because this man by 1926 was well known to the Daily News under that name. So, unlike Billy Batten, we don't know what happened to Billy G, whether he ever got back home or when he died. As a measure of attitudes at the time, the Daily News described Detective Sergeant O'Brien, who was working with Goldie, Billy G, Tommy and Sambo, as the quote, best tracker, be he black man or white, in the Commonwealth. O'Brien was reportedly so good that Aboriginal trackers sought his advice. Quote, 
the alert brain of the white man places O'Brien at a distinct advantage over the black fellow when they take the same trail. All the searchers, black trackers and white police faced the same frustrations when heavy rains fell across the goldfields in the first week after the bodies of Walsh and Pittman were discovered. On the morning of Tuesday the 18th of May, the detectives' requiem mass was held at St Mary's Catholic Cathedral in Perth. Archbishop Clune called the men living lamps of virtue whose lives had been taken by a mutilating and savage band of assassins. The procession to Karakata Cemetery was watched by some 30,000 people, which in 1926 was about one-fifth of Perth's population. The same day that the city and state were paying their respects, Detective Sergeant Manning found car tyre tracks 300 paces from the Miller's Fine shaft on the side that was away from the Coolgardie Road, where the sightseers had been. These tracks had been made in the wet, and they showed where a car had turned around and then driven back towards the shaft. It wasn't long before the tyre tracks were identified as having come from Dunlop balloon tyres. This was now the focus. Those frustrating cart tracks had had nothing to do with the murders. Yesterday, they'd finally been traced to a woman who'd gone out collecting feed for her goats in the area. A new related breakthrough came on Sunday the 23rd of May. While they were out looking for a gold processing plant south of Boulder that was being operated by persons of interest in the murder investigation, detectives were alerted to more tyre tracks that a civilian had seen not far away west of the Celebration Road. Examining these tracks, detectives found they matched the Dunlop balloon prints found near Miller's shaft five days earlier. Detective Sergeants Purdue, O'Brien, Manning, Constable Hughes and Constable Pite, Trooper Goldie and black trackers Tommy and Sambo were now on the hunt for bicycle tracks. That afternoon, 17 miles southwest of Boulder, they found what they were looking for. Bike tracks and boot prints. As the Daily News reported, quote, from the appearance of the tracks and the nature of the country, it was clearly apparent, even to the uninitiated eye, the machines had not been ridden, but had been pushed along the murdered men's last trail. Aboriginal men Tommy and Sambo were on the case. The Daily News seeming to forget that they'd recently claimed O'Brien was the master tracker. Quote, Once on the tracks, the black trackers followed them with an unerring eye. Although nearly a month old and subjected to several rain and dust storms, a slight indentation, a hill mark here and there, was sufficient for the keen-eyed blackfellows, and swiftly they led police across rough, unbroken ground, over an ironstone ridge, and up to a thick patch of broom scrub. There they were, the two bicycles. The machines were as they'd been left, tyres inflated, Walsh's lunch bag attached to the handlebars, Pittman's water bag attached to his. The men hadn't eaten the food they'd brought, and that seemed to suggest they'd been killed within hours of setting out on the morning of April the 28th. Darkness was falling, so next morning a party returned and followed the footprints from the bikes. The trackers worked the area. Five or six hundred yards distant, they found the gold smelting plant. There was a roaster and marks where the furnace had been removed. Crucibles, dolly pots, tongs, moulds and other items used for illicit gold work were also found. A piece of iron with three holes in it appeared to have bloodstains. There were bags of coke and sacks of gold-bearing ore. Detective Sergeant Manning would characterise it as a typical, well-set-up gold treatment plant, well hidden in the bush. Where there were natural openings in the scrub, trees had been placed to screen the site from view. People had camped here. They'd left behind a frying pan and a small billy can. 
then there were empty food tins. They hadn't contained the sort of tucker your average bloke might eat. These cans had held delicacies, asparagus, crabs and chicken. Fingerprints might be taken from these. At the very least, inquiries could be made with Kalgoorlie and Boulder shopkeepers about which locals had such fancy tastes. Just as inquiries were underway about those double-seated grey trousers and who in town had a car with Dunlop balloon tyres. While some of what was found was made public, Detective Sergeant Purdue kept much out of the newspapers. This included that police had found bits of burnt bone, fragments of cloth and some burnt tweed. He also held back that a hundred yards from the plant, more tyre prints had been found on a bush track, and two sets of footprints from that spot to the gold plant had been found along a well-beaten path. On that path were burnt ashes and more burnt bone. Detective Sergeant Manning thought they'd fallen out of a torn sack. What he also found was a piece of paper under a bush. Across the top was written, quote, Boulder City, Cornwall Hotel, WA. Another piece of paper had the name O'Connor written on it. About 50 paces from the plant, police found a thick felt wad of shotgun cartridge. A honeysuckle tree nearby had broken branches, its bark and twigs marked with pellets at about shoulder and head height. Behind it was a salt bush and another honeysuckle, and they had also been hit by the spread of pellets. This fit with the theory that Walsh and Pittman had been killed with headshots. Around the first honeysuckle were distinct boot prints. A person had staggered here while doubled up. Where the man had fallen, earth had been removed. At another spot, there were more boot prints, farther apart, but they were then lost amid other tracks that led back to the plant. A second used shotgun cartridge was also found. What puzzled the Aboriginal trackers was one set of boot prints was so small, with a raised heel, that it seemed like a woman had been here, or maybe a very small man. In any event, the dirt told the story. One man had fallen down fast. Another man had run, taking big strides. Then he'd fallen too. Earth had also been removed from that spot. This was a major breakthrough. But Inspector Condon played it down for the press, saying, quote, We've gone a fair way, but there is still some distance to go. Even so, there were hints the police had suspects in their sights. For instance, the Daily News reported, quote, Close inquiries failed to reveal the sudden departure from Kalgoorlie or Boulder of any person likely to have been connected with the murder. Truth newspaper seized on this, running a headline that called the culprits rats in a trap. A subheadline colourfully added, Relentless, the jaws of the trap set for Kalgoorlie murderers are closing in. It speculated that capture was hours away, days at most. But a week later, when nothing further had been revealed by the police, Truth did an abrupt about-face. Its headline asking, Have the Western Australian police failed? It suggested it might be necessary for detectives from eastern states to come in and take over. Truth said that Perth and Goldfields police and their methods were just too well known by the men they were hunting. Unknown faces and fresh approaches were needed. Inspector Condon, Detective Sergeant Purdue and their colleagues might be expected to have been a little bit rankled at this bad press, but there's every chance they were thankful for it. It'd be good if their suspects were lulled into a false sense of security. That was because in Kalgoorlie and surrounds, locals had been talking freely about the men they thought the police were after. They weren't asking who'd be arrested, but when they'd be taken down. For once, the scuttlebutt was spot on. 
Condon, Purdue, other detectives and constables had been quietly asking a lot of questions, and three names just kept coming up. The police files show that even before the bikes were found, investigators had narrowed their focus to these three men. It had been their gold plant they'd been looking for when the tyre tracks were found on the 23rd of May. Purdue and his men had been secretly and carefully building their case. They owed it to their fallen colleagues, Walsh and Pittman, to get it right and get these guys. The three men in question weren't outsiders or foreigners. They were well-known Goldfields figures. Philip Trefine and William Coulter had both been convicted of illicit gold dealing, thanks, of course, to the work of detectives Walsh and Pittman. Walsh, the night before he disappeared, had mentioned these two in passing to Condon, and over the past three weeks, police had received numerous tips about their movements. The third man's name had also been mentioned frequently, even though he hadn't been behind bars for stealing gold. Evan Clark, known to all as Teddy, was a handsome chap. So slight, though, he could have been a jockey. Teddy was also a bit of a dandy, vain enough to add to his height with high heels on his small boots. Investigations had also revealed he regularly bought tinned delicacies, asparagus, crabs, chicken, and of the same brand as those found at the murder scene. Clark had last year bought a fancy new car. It was an Overland 6, and it was fitted with Dunlop balloon tyres. He'd often be seen driving around Kalgoorlie and Boulder, going to or from his home, which was also his place of business, as licensee of the Duke of Cornwall Hotel. On Saturday night, the 5th of June, 1926, Inspector Condon, Detective Sergeant Purdue and their men had everything they needed. First thing tomorrow morning, they'd be raiding the Duke of Cornwall Hotel, and they'd be asking a lot of very difficult questions of Teddy Clark, Phil Trefine and William Coulter. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part two of the Forgotten Australia episode, Blue Murder on the Golden Mile. The third instalment will be on general release very soon. If you click subscribe or follow in the podcast app you use, you'll get the instalment as soon as it's out. But if you want early ad-free access to that and every Forgotten Australia episode, you can get it as a show supporter. For more information, go to patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, and that link's also in your show notes. You can also support Forgotten Australia by leaving a rating and review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your downloads. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com.